Let's pray. Jesus, we want to talk a little bit about conversion today. That's something only you can make happen. So we ask you to come and do a work in our lives as we consider these things this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. So just how do you fall in love? Is there a formula? Three easy steps, add water and serve. There's an endless variety. The core of most entertainment books, movies, and songs is about falling in love or falling out of love. That's right. My story, well, I gained a lot of experience in that in high school and college. I was a very insecure kid from about seventh grade on. And I had a string of girlfriends. I realized between music grades and girls, that's kind of how I kept myself together during some very rough years from about 13 to 20. And it seemed like I'd date a girl and I'd like her, so I'd date her again. And then, you know, the next thing you know, we're going together. And then that lasts for two or three months, you know. And then you break up or she dumps you or you dump her. Are you the dumper or the dumpy? And... Everybody's heart is broken. And because it was such an important part of my sense of security, I had a string of girlfriends, Sheila, Susie, Delight, Pamela, Jackie, Linda, Loretta, Mindy, and Kathy, and a few other shorter, especially camp-meeting girlfriends in between. You know, you go to a camp-meeting for a week. Why? You have to have a girlfriend for a week. And then you promise to write, and you feel bad, but a week or two later, you get over it, and you move on. Anyway... Fall of 1977, my junior year at Pacific Union College, I had just gone through another traumatic breakup, felt terrible, and I decided I was tired of getting tied down. I decided I wanted to date around for a while, not get tied down. But I figured I had to have a strategy, and this was it. If I asked a young lady out for a certain event, before that event, I had to ask a different young lady out for a subsequent event. See, that way I wouldn't ask the first one a second time right away, and I wouldn't get tied down. So I had to make sure that whenever I had a date, I had somebody else for a future date already lined up. And that worked splendid for about six weeks. And then nobody would go out with me. Now, there's a backstory behind this. The previous January, January of 77, I'd driven a couple hours from the college over to Lodi, California, to see a friend named Bill, who was the leader of a sort of heritage knockoff style gospel singing group. I'd actually been the pianist for that group during the calendar year 1975. We traveled around the Pacific Union Conference and done evangelistic meetings. And then I'd gone back to college and somebody else had taken my place as the pianist. And uh, so a friend of mine and I, who'd also been in the group with me in 1975, we drove over to Lodi to see Bill, who was in the group, and they were our friends still. And when I got there, there was an additional person singing with the group. Usually there were, you know, five college students and Bill, and there was a sixth, is a skinny, freckled redhead, in a gunny sack dress. Anybody remember those dresses if you're old enough? And 
she had an eat-your-heart-out Karen Carpenter voice, if you're old enough to know what I mean by that. And we were introduced, not, nothing special, she just really sang well, and, and I appreciated that. And I didn't realize it, but a few weeks later, sometime not too much later, she told her mother, that's the man I'm going to marry. I didn't know I was toast already. Anyway, that school year ended, Marilyn graduated. She was the skinny, freckled redhead, if you didn't figure that out by now. Uh, she graduated from Lodi Academy and moved up to Pacific Union College, where she actually ended up rooming, having a room in the house with Bill and his wife and two little babies that they had. And uh, I came back to being the pianist, and we from the college now, everyone was back working on their degree, um, we went out and spent our weekends out in churches, singing, ministering, doing evangelism. Marilyn says we never dated. We just did evangelism. What's really interesting is I ended up being the accompanist for Marilyn, and I was really the first accompanist after her mother. Her mother was the only previous accompanist she had. And uh, Marilyn's mom can play anything, amazing pianist. But Marilyn and I really didn't like each other. I thought she was fickle, and she thought I was egotistical. I won't go into that. But we spent tons of time together, like every weekend and lots of practice time. We'd drive long distances together in my Pinto to go to these various uh, events where we were leading in worship and singing. And I remember now when I was hitting a dry spell on my dating around escapade that I called my friend Bill and Bill wasn't home but Marilyn answered the phone and I don't know why but I ended up telling her my woes and she chewed me out of course no one's going to go out with you they all have your number and on and on she went I discovered later that one of the girls who had turned me down had done so at her instructions <clears throat> And after she got done chewing me out, I asked her out. And she said, are you serious? Not exactly the kind of response a guy wants. And I said yes, and for some strange reason, she said yes. And I don't even remember the occasion at this point, but we had a pleasant time, and it kind of started to click. Kind of started to like each other a little bit. The next weekend was my birthday, and... The next weekend, I also had the last of my prearranged dates before the dry spell began. So Marilyn and I spent a Sabbath together and really kind of started liking each other. And then we spent the next Sabbath together at my birthday down at my house with some other friends. And then at the close of that day, I had to take her home and take Hannah out to an event at the college. And as soon as I had completed my duties. I wasn't going to stand her up. I was a good host. I took Hannah back to the dorm and I went back to Marilyn's place and you might say I've been there ever since. And I tell that story simply to say when I mentioned Lee and when he met Margie, he said it wasn't a click, it was a nuclear explosion. It was love at first sight. Marilyn and I didn't work that way at all. We hung out together about five months before we even liked each other and then something clicked. It wasn't an immediate click, 
We weren't initially attracted to each other at all romantically. She very quickly became my favorite singer, and I became her favorite accompanist. But that was about as far as it went for several months. So what are the click indicators that can tell you've fallen in love with somebody? I've compiled five here. They become the central focus of your life. It's all you can think about, right? You get this deep interest in learning all about them. The most mundane details are absolutely fascinating. You love to talk with them. Hours can go by, deep into the night, even when you have to get up early in the morning, and you don't realize that hours have gone by. It's so fascinating. You desire to spend time with them every day. You think you're going to die if you have a day that you can't see them. You, you suddenly hate school vacations, right? Because you're going one direction, they're going the other for three whole days, you know, weekend leave. Uh, and you love to talk to others about them until your friends finally say, you're in love with her, not me. So, you know, we've heard all we want to hear. God's favorite illustration for his relationship with his people is romance. All through scripture, especially the Old Testament, God's the lover. He's pursuing us, the beloved. He's seeking relationship with us, and we seem to be playing hard to get or simply not interested. Salvation is more about falling in love than it is about being good or doing what's right. Remember, last time we said being a Christian is not about what you do or know. It's about who you know, and who you know will transform what you do. If you set out to try to be a Christian, but that click of conversion never happens, that new birth never occurs, that romance with Jesus is never sparked, and it's just a head knowledge religion without a hard experience, it's going to be a long, dry summer. And as sinners, we are not naturally attracted to, to God. As I said last night, sin is essentially telling God to go away and leave me alone. I'll do it myself. We chose a different lover. We ran off with someone else and told God not to write or call or talk. Leave me alone. The Bible says, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. If you find that reading Scripture and spending time with God is a little bit like chewing cardboard, that's natural. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. If you find it hard to believe the right things about God or believe that he's good and, and all of this, don't be surprised, there's somebody out there telling lies about him. From the very dawn of your memory, even before you can rationally think about what you're thinking about, he is inserting lies about the Father. A little story from my childhood. After we moved from Michigan when I was two and a half, we moved to Auburn, Washington, where my dad taught music there at Auburn Academy for a year. And I have about three memories from that year. So I know I was between the age of two and a half and three and a half. One of those memories was family worship. Now my dad, he always had to have worship, the way he'd say it. We've got to have worship. got to have worship. And worship always meant, and he was good about this, reading something short. He didn't go on and on from either the Bible or Ellen White. And, um, and then have prayer. And I remember one day... Clear as a bell, 
I'm sitting on the piano bench. By the way, my dad started me playing the piano before I remember. So he started me when I was three. Something I've always done. I'm sitting on the piano bench. The living room's probably not any bigger than this area right here. Dad's over there. I'm on the piano bench, and my mom and sister are over here. And when Dad had finished reading, he said, let's pray, and he got on his knees, and I said, pray by Daddy. Pray by Daddy. And I got on my knees, and I started shuffling my way across to pray by my Daddy. And I got about halfway across the room, and he started praying. My little brain said, he doesn't care about me. Now, that was an absolute, unmitigated lie from hell. But I bought it. And I pushed my dad away for the rest of his life. And I didn't realize that's what I did until after he was gone. And I was about 41. And God revealed that to me. Yeah, he had his issues. He disciplined in anger. He and my mom didn't get along. There were all the reasons I thought he didn't want to be close to me and then God revealed to me once somebody was praying for me and that I had pushed from that day on now where did I get that idea did I come up with the thought as I went across the floor that my dad didn't care about me no I believe that was a lie from the devil he inserts lies right from the very beginning and he loves to insert them the best before we're even capable of understanding they're a lie. I think this is one reason we need to pray for our kids from the very beginning that they'll be shielded from these lies. I realize there's nothing my dad wanted more than to be close to me and I was constantly pushing him away. And it was a rather amazing moment when God showed me that. The God of this age has blinded us, made us think that we don't want God. He won't be any fun. He's not someone we would want to be with. It'll be boring. It'll be a loss of life. When in reality, if we actually come to him, we'll find life to the full. No one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him. And a little statement from Steps to Christ. A profession of Christ without this deep love is mere talk, dry formality, and heavy drudgery. Now, I'm not going to ask for hands. But how many of you would say that has been a significant part of your spiritual experience? If you don't have the click, if you don't actually fall in love, this religion thing is, well, it's boring, it's dry, it's heavy, but it's better than ending up in the flames. And we try to go for it. Without the click, the new birth experience, Christian life is tedious and boring. Conversion lies at the very basis of salvation. The new birth is that hinge on which the gospel door swings. So if we were going to apply these five click indicators to spiritual things, our click indicators with Jesus, what are some of the indicators that we have fallen in love with Jesus? Number one, is Jesus the central focus of my life? What does Scripture say? You shall have no other gods before me. That doesn't mean God wants to be the first on the list. It means God wants to be the only one on the list. Just like Marilyn doesn't want to be the first on my list of wives. She wants to be the only one. And she is. Praise the Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with how much? 
all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. How much is left for anyone else? On that level, zero. God is exclusive. Rejoice in the Lord always. You don't have much time to rejoice in anyone else if you're rejoicing in the Lord always. Number two, do you have a deep interest in learning about Jesus? As newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow by thereby. Do we desire that pure milk of the word? Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do we have a hunger for the things from the mouth of God? I am the bread of life, Jesus said. He who feeds on me will live because of me. He who eats this bread will live forever. Do I have a deep desire to learn about Jesus, especially through the word? Number three, do I love to talk with Jesus? In everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Pray without ceasing. Do I love that ongoing, everyday conversation with Jesus? Do I delight in that? Number four, do I desire to spend time with Jesus every day? You know, when you met that beloved, you couldn't stand a day, you know. Can't live if there's a day without you. I think there have been some songs about that. Got to see you every day. Give us this day our daily bread. Take up the cross daily and follow me. I die daily. It's a daily thing. Do I have a daily experience? Do I crave a daily experience with Jesus? Somebody said uh, seven days without Jesus makes one week. That's an idiom. And fifthly, do I love to talk about Jesus to others? Exhort one another daily. Do I love to talk about Jesus to others? Now, that's quite a list, isn't it? How does that list work for you? Can you honestly sit back and say, man, Jesus is the absolute center focus of my life 24-7. I have this constant desire just to learn more about him and read his word more. And I just, prayer is just an ongoing, I can't, be without talking with Jesus and it's got to be every day that I spend time with him and I just every time I talk to people Jesus just keeps bubbling over everywhere anybody with me on that anybody have trouble with some of those you know I read that list and sometimes I wonder <laughs> have I been converted do I have all those passions for Jesus. I know I felt Jesus call in my heart when I was about 10 years old. Went forward on a call at Union Springs camp meeting in New York State where my dad was pastoring at the time. I've been seriously seeking Jesus since I was a teenager. I remember a lot of high school spiritual events I let out in and was involved in. I heard and responded to God's call to ministry when I was 16. Very clear. I learned about a relationship with Jesus being the center of the Christian life when I was about 17. That it's not about trying to do all the right things and not do all the wrong things. It's about who you know. And yet I admit, I have trouble in some of these areas. Do you? I struggle with some of these conversion indicators. I struggle in finding the romance with Jesus. Now, I'll tell you why I think one reason is 
If you were blocked in a heart relationship with your earthly father, you have a problem with a block in your, with your heavenly father because we often translate that through. So that's been a difficulty for me. And yet, I can tell you unequivocally, I have felt the call of God. I have seen him work in my life. I've seen him work through me. I believe that I have been converted, but I seek a deeper conversion experience daily. I call it a deeper click. Where does the Bible actually talk about the new birth? About being conversion, being born again. The most direct passage seems to be John chapter 3 where it tells us there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. We learn a couple of things. Number one, he was a good liver. He was a Pharisee because they were all about good living. Number two, he was a ruler of the Jews. He was probably a senator, one of the Sanhedrin members, one of the top 70 in the nation. So he was a BMOC, he was a big man, a big important VIP. If we drop down to verse 10, Jesus said to him, are you the teacher of Israel? Interesting, he uses the definite article, not a teacher, the teacher of Israel, and do not know these things. Evidently, Nicodemus was at the top of the scholarly leaders of Israel at the time. He would be the ultimate go-to person if you wanted the answer. And we're going to call him a fourth-generation Jew. I'm a fourth-generation Adventist, okay? Maybe he was a 40th-generation Jew. You know, some of us grew up in it. We have it running in our veins. It would be hard to be anything else. It would be hard to leave even if we're bored. Because it's just who we've been all of our lives. And Nicodemus was, this thing was in his blood. It was in his culture. It was from birth on. He was as Jewish as any Jew could be. Nicodemus was one of these people that if a, a parent had a young Son, they want him to grow up to be like Nicodemus, right? He was a, na- a well-known name, a well-known good person in the Jewish community. So when Nicodemus comes to see Jesus, he has a reputation to keep. So he comes at night because Jesus is a little shaky with the right people. He didn't go to the right schools and go to get all the right degrees. I'm glad our pastor got the right degree, amen? amen. I got one of those 40 years ago. Um, I was so glad to be out of school, I've never gone back. But, uh, you know, Jesus didn't go to the right school, didn't get the right degree. He had an apprentice to the right famous rabbi to now be a rabbi, and yet he was doing amazing things. So Nicodemus comes by night, he wants to see Jesus, but he doesn't want to be seen with Jesus. And he says, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. There is a whole lot in that sentence. You get the feeling that Nicodemus planned his opening remarks with Jesus, that he had this down. He he essentially says, Jesus, I've been watching you. Now that could even be flattery. Because a young man, for an older man like Nicodemus to say, I've had my eye on you. I remember when Morris Venden was pastor at Pacific Union College. He was pastor there the whole time I was there going to school. And I remember a couple times Morris said, Cousin Morris said, I've been watching you. 
He says, you're picking brains. That was a word he used a lot. You're, you're listening. You're, I, I see you vacuuming up good stuff. That meant a lot to me. For Morris, my cousin Morris to say, I've been watching you. Ah, somebody, somebody sees me. So he says to Jesus, essentially, I've been watching you. Now, we don't know what all he'd seen. We know there were Pharisees present at the baptism when the Spirit came down and the voice spoke. Could have been Nicodemus, but certainly if it wasn't, he must have heard about it. Then Jesus disappeared for six weeks. Then when he showed up again, he ended up going to Galilee and turning water into wine. We don't know whether that information had filtered south yet. But I'm pretty certain he saw Jesus cleanse the temple. In fact, he might have been rooting for him because remember, it was the Sadducees who ran the temple system. And the Pharisees hated the Sadducees and the Sadducees hated the Pharisees. And Nicodemus might have been going right on, clear that stuff out. But he also would be saying, how'd he do that? He doesn't have any authority. He doesn't have any credentials. He's a nobody. And he walks in and by his voice and his look, all the somebodies and all the authorities split the scene. There's something strange and amazing about innate authority. Nicodemus says, I've been watching you. I've seen you do some amazing things. And then John 2.23 says that Jesus performed other signs then, but it doesn't tell us any of the story. So evidently he performed some miracles there at Passover when he cleared the temple. So Nicodemus says, I have been watching you, and there is something special about you. You must have a connection with God. Now, what's the elephant in the room that's not being mentioned? Are you the Messiah? We know that there was a huge messianic expectation and agitation going on at this time. There were several false messiahs that rose up and got a group of guys with them and ended up being dispersed by the Romans and killed. There were all kinds of messianic rumblings going on. And so Nicodemus never says it, but I think it's the elephant in the room there. Could you be the promised one? Because you're doing some amazing things. Now Jesus' response is not what Nicodemus wanted. Nicodemus is essentially saying, can we discuss spiritual matters? And what does Jesus say? Sorry, I say to you, assuredly, this is certain. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, we often translate that to mean, unless you're born again, you're not going to see heaven. I don't believe that's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is essentially saying, unless one is born again, you aren't even in a position to discuss spiritual matters. Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you won't get it. Now, this is the guy without a degree talking to the guy with three PhDs, so to speak, who says, I'd love to discuss spiritual matters with you. And I know you have three PhDs in theology, but you just wouldn't get it. I hate it when people say that to me, don't you? I'd love to tell you, but you wouldn't get it. Hmm. Pretty hard on the ego. Jesus says to Nicodemus, I'd like to, but you wouldn't get it. A little bit like, again, the woman that 
A little old lady that shook Morris Venden's hand and said, nice sermon, Pastor. It'll be even better when you know Jesus for yourself. (laughs) Boom, that's a hit. You know, if we haven't had that click of conversion or new birth, reciting spiritual things is a little bit like a parrot reciting math. You can teach a parrot to say, two plus two is four. Right? Is the parrot telling the truth? Yes. Does the parrot have any idea what it's saying? No. Without the click of conversion, we can parrot Scripture and doctrine and truth. But it hasn't sunk in. We're not really getting it, even though we've been able to parrot it. It's almost trying to discuss spiritual things is like trying to explain the color red to a person that was born blind. How are you going to do that? Well, it's a little darker than yellow. You know, well, yellow is a little lighter than red. You know, there's no basis upon which to discuss color with a person who's been blind all their life. And in the same way, Jesus seems to suggest, you just wouldn't get it, Nicodemus. Unless you are born again. Jesus said in Matthew thirteen fourteen, Hearing you will hear and not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. The, na- the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. The natural man does not receive the things, their foolishness to him. It's like talking a different language. By the way, again, if reading the Bible is... About as exciting as reading the phone book, it's not your fault. You were born that way. There's a problem we have. We come spiritually dysfunctional. You could say we're all only running on seven cylinders. The spiritual cylinder isn't working too well. When I was in my mid-twenties, my brother-in-law had a truck, a tractor of a tractor trailer, and he drove big rigs. I always wanted to have my class one license, as it was called back then, and so this was my chance. I didn't have to rent a truck. I could borrow it. So I remember he took me out, and I drove and learned to shift that thing all 15 gears, and I loved driving it. And I went down and took my written test and passed with flying colors. I passed to be able to drive stuff I knew nothing about. I don't know how I did that, but, you know, air brakes and explosives and all kinds. I knew nothing about it, but I was able to pass the test. So then they... They uh, did an eye test. Now, that's a no-brainer for me back in those days. I had better vision than 2020, you know, when I went to the doctor's office and he said, stand on the line, I could back up 10 feet and still read the bottom line. I was probably a little obnoxious about it, but I had good eyes. So I looked down in this, this thing, and they have these circles with big dots with different colors in them, and they say, now tell me what number you see. So on slide one, I can see that certain of those dots make a number two, okay? Number two. Uh, slide two, there's a 13 there, okay? Slide three. We went down through and we got to about slide seven. And I said, well, there's no number there. And they said, well, yes, there is. And I looked and I tried. I couldn't see a number. There was no number seven in slide 11, right? 
And I discovered I was at least slightly colorblind. I have a red-green blindness. I joked that I decide whether the light's at the top or the bottom. Actually, I can see the difference between red and green, but if you put a, a red or orange golf ball out on the green, it doesn't jump out. Better, better with yellow. You'll see I tend to highlight everything in yellow. That sticks out for me. So I have a red-green blindness. And there's nothing anybody can do about it. There's no amount of education or explanation or doctoring or counseling or practice. There is a blindness there that I can't do anything about. And I believe Jesus is saying, until we have a new birth experience, there will be a certain spiritual blindness that we can't get past. And he looks at Nicodemus and he says, you wouldn't get it. Now, instead of being offended, I'm pretty proud of Nicodemus here. He said, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, remember, the, the Jewish theology was very literalistic. I don't think Nicodemus was being snarky here. I think he was truly saying, uh, how? What do you mean be born again? How does that work? The reason I believe his answer was genuine was because Jesus bothered to respond. If he'd have just been pulling funnies, I don't think Jesus would have gone further because there isn't a receptive soil. So Nicodemus says, how can an old man be born again? And Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, the word spirit is the same as wind or breath, unless one is born of water and wind, water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Pretty well understand that, having babies. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What's that all about? Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. That was direct. He'd said, unless one is born. <laughs> Do not marvel that I said, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. You cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the wind. It's the same word. Now, I want you to kind of get the feel of what Jesus says here. Nicodemus says, can we talk about spiritual things? Jesus says, no, you wouldn't get it unless you're born again. Nicodemus says, okay, how can I be born again? And Jesus says, well, it's a wind thing. When it blows through, it'll blow through. You know, put up your sail. Maybe it'll take you away. You can't make it happen, Nicodemus. Oh, dear. How do you get something you really want when you can't make it happen? That can be very frustrating, right? Jesus really leaves Nicodemus here squirming. Can we talk about spiritual things? You wouldn't get it. You have to be born again. How can I be born again? You can't make it happen. Great. Now what do we do? Nicodemus answered and he said, how can these things be? I believe what Nicodemus is asking here is then how can it happen to me? How can these things come into existence? The state of being verb. Uh, you say I need it. I don't have it. I ask how I can get it. You say I can't make it happen. So then how can I get it? 
And Jesus said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Nicodemus, this is the basics. I was very fortunate. A year and a half into my internship as a pastor, when I was about to be sent to the seminary, an evangelist called up instead and asked Marilyn and I to come and do music, be singing evangelists and help with visitation and training and things. And that lasted for nine years with that evangelist, another, and then on our own. Working with that evangelist was one of the hardest experiences we've ever had. The stress in that team had my wife down to 96 pounds in a year. And when we needed some time off for her to get some health care, that was no problem, but it would be without pay. So this wasn't the greatest evangelist to work for. Good man, by the way, won hundreds and hundreds of people to Jesus, but hard to work for. But I know why God sent us there. The first thing he taught me was how to simply lead a person to understand eternal life and receive it. To have the assurance of eternal life. We're going to talk about that this afternoon. And after about a year and a half, when that was thoroughly in my blood, both learning it and then teaching it to others, he fired us. But God had the next place in mind. We went seamlessly to the next spot, and I used that. I am so thankful that somewhere very early in my ministerial life, I was forced to focus not on how to convince someone of the Sabbath and that you sleep in the grave and hell burns out, but what it means to get to know Jesus, have Jesus, receive Jesus, receive eternal life, and know you have eternal life, and how to lead someone to an invitation point for that. Most powerful thing. It's been the center of everything I've done since then. So all the hardness of working for that evangelist, I have to say, was worth it, but it was no fun. Are you the teacher in Israel and you don't know these things? I've met a lot of pastors who don't know how to do that simple first step. I'm not talking about it's something we do, but there is something about knowing how to open your Bible and explain the simplicity of the gospel and invite somebody simply to receive Jesus before you get around all the other doctrines. Start with Jesus. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, do you not understand the basics? Assuredly, I say to you, and it's interesting, Jesus goes plural here, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen and you don't receive our witness. What's he talking about? He's at least saying to Nicodemus, trust me, guy, I know what I'm talking about. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, like being born physically, how are you going to believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man. Jesus says, I've been there and I am here and I know what I'm talking about. Jesus really pulls a very quiet authority thing here. On Nicodemus. He doesn't take a back seat to Nicodemus's scholarship at all. He claims a lordship right here. And then he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus was known for teaching with stories. And here he teaches with a story that he doesn't tell, because Nicodemus knows the story. But just in case you don't, let's learn the story. It comes from Numbers 21. 
Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Now this is right near the end of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. They've been eating manna for breakfast for 40 years. Their shoes haven't worn out. Their clothing hasn't worn out, but they're still in the wilderness. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, there's no water, and our soul loathes this cafeteria food. You remember? It didn't matter in school, boarding school, whether the cafeteria food was good or lousy, you hated it because that was the only cool thing to do, right? You'd go back for seconds, but it was lousy. And they say... God has been dropping breakfast in every morning. He hasn't missed a morning except Sabbath. He gave him double on Friday. He hasn't missed a day in 40 years. And they look up at God and say, we are so sick of your food. Ooh, that's dangerous when you don't have any other. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and many of the people died. Oh, So God says, you don't like my food? Fine. I'll kill you with snakes. Is that what's going on here? I don't believe. That's not a God of love. What they didn't realize is that God had not only given them food and kept their clothes from wearing out, he had put a snake fence around. I live in the deserts and there are snakes. You realize, folks, we don't need God to curse us for things that go bad. This world is a curse. The only reason there's anything good is because he's put up a fence of blessing. And when we complain long enough, he finally says, well, let me just take down a section of that fence and see if I get your attention. So God took down the snake fence and they discovered they were in trouble. And they came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, meaning a poisonous serpent, a replica of a poisonous serpent, and set it on a pole. And it will be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if the serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent... He lived. Now, why was the serpent put on a pole? So it was high and lifted up, and no matter where you were in the camp, if you simply looked in its direction, you could see it. You didn't have to make a pilgrimage. You didn't have to wait for some special festival day. You didn't have to bring some special offering. All you had to do was crawl to the corner of your tent, lift the flap, and look, and you could see it. It was good for everyone. And you'll notice there is no conditions. It doesn't say that uh, if you believe, you'll be healed. It doesn't say as long as you weren't deliberately messing with snakes, you'll be healed. It doesn't say if you got bit a second time because you were messing with snakes again. If you look, no conditions, you'll be healed. Now, who does this snake represent? 
Jesus lifted up on the cross. What does that tell us about Jesus? He so identified with sin that he looked like the problem. He bore our sins in his body physically. God evidently, through his foreknowledge and past knowledge, gathered up every sin and by his creative power, the same power by which he says rock and a rock appears or tree and a tree appears, he said sin and he made him who knew no sin to be sin. The one who never sinned became all sin. When Jesus was lifted up, he looked like the problem. And Jesus simply tells Nicodemus, Jesus simply brings this story to Nicodemus' mind so he can think about it later. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, that bronze snake high on a pole that anywhere you could see, anywhere from camp you could see it, And if you just looked, you would live. As Moses lifted up that serpent, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Oh, you wonder what went through Nicodemus' mind for the next three years. What did that mean? The sacrifices, the lifting up. Oh. But of the entire discussion with Nicodemus, this is the only can-do point. If you want something to happen relating to the new birth, there's only one thing you can do. Turn your eyes and look at the uplifted Savior. And if you look, you will live. Lifting up Jesus, focusing on Jesus, even if you haven't had the click yet, even if you don't find him exciting yet, even if you haven't fallen in love with him yet, if you go with a prayer and look to Jesus, even from an unconverted heart, it's the only thing you can do to move towards conversion. And Jesus says, if you look, you'll live. So he says the guarantee is there. If you will take the time to fix your eyes on the uplifted Savior, the conversion will happen. Amen? Amen. You can't make it happen. It's the wind that blows through. But you can look to the uplifted Savior and he guarantees it will happen. You keep looking, it'll happen. You keep looking, it'll get deeper. That's what I pray for. Convincing arguments only fill the church with unconverted people. Logic, arguments, proof texts. But until that click of conversion happens, you don't have the real thing. Look and live. Can we discuss spiritual matters? No, you wouldn't get it till you're born again. How can an old man be born again? You can't make it happen. It's a wind thing. How is this a day able to happen to me? Fix your eyes on the uplifted Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold does not mean glance. Behold doesn't mean take an occasional peek. Behold doesn't mean once a week. You come to church and look. Behold means to stare. To the point if you were staring at somebody else like that, they'd say, what are you looking at? Stare. Behold. Fix your eyes on the uplifted Savior. And Jesus said, if I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to myself. We have the privilege of looking And he will draw. That's the only thing we can do. 
is look. And we can do that. We can take the time and we can look. And Jesus says, I guarantee the outcome. You know, I first heard the message that I'm sharing with you in the summer of 1972. It was from my cousin Morris Venden when he was a pastor at La Sierra University. That was a difficult summer because during the previous school year, we lived in Albuquerque. My dad was teaching music at Sandy View Academy. A couple of things happened. Number one, my mom and dad completed 24 years of marriage. My sister and I were now 16 and 18 years old. Mom and dad had not had a happy day together since their wedding day, including their wedding day. It didn't end well. They stuck it out for the kids. Um, It was not a sweet marriage at all. It was a battle, a daily battle. And we knew it, you know, the kids know it. We're not blind. My sister and I had a bond like this because we stuck together. (laughs) When the parents are battling, the kids can stick together. My mom finally came to the point that spring where she had to be honest with us kids. She said, I cannot stand your father. I can't stay here anymore. I can't stand it. Now, mom was honest. She said, essentially, she said, I'm a, I'm a lifelong Christian, a lifelong Adventist. I'm a pastor's wife. Dad was both pastor and taught music in our schools, went back and forth. But my dad's identity was as a pastor, even when he wasn't pastoring. So I'm a minister's wife, lifelong Adventist, lifelong Christian, and I hate my husband. And I seem to be powerless to change that. Dad wasn't rehired at the end of that school year. That was a very sad point in his life. Dad ended up driving truck for the summer to earn money. And mom and my sister and I moved to Loma Linda where mom had some relatives with a nursing home where we could work and live in a little bungalow behind their house and get through the summer and see what would happen next. It was a very insecure time for our family. And my mom was struggling with this internal dissonance of I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, I hate my husband, you know, this doesn't work. But she'd heard that Cousin Morris... And if you ever knew Cousin Morris, he was the world's greatest introvert. It was only in the pulpit that he came out. His son used to say, when Dad starts to talk, I want to get a pad and take notes. But he had a message. He'd gone through the struggle of getting to know Jesus. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a couple of nights. He'd gone through the struggle of getting to know Jesus. And now he, as he would put it, he had one string on his violin. It was about developing a relationship with Jesus, and he played that string over and over again. Till at the end of that summer, one young lady came up and said, when are you going to preach about something else? He said, when you get it. Anyway, my mom and sister and I, we drove the 45 minutes over from Loma Linda to La Sierra every Sabbath that summer, and we listened to Cousin Maury talk about having a relationship with Jesus. And I watched as my mom began to soak that in. I already felt a clear call to the ministry, but I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it or with Jesus. And I watched my mom soak that in. And over the next couple of years, they ended up back together. Dad ended up teaching music there in the L.A. area. and I was going to Orangewood Academy right near Disneyland. And During those two years, last two years of high school, I watched my mother's heart change. 
I watched her get up in the morning and spend time with Jesus on a daily basis just to get to know him, not trying to do the right thing, just trying to know the right person. And I actually watched my mother's heart soften and the hatred go away. Now, their relationship never was the romance every girl desires, but they were together until 18 years later. Mom was holding Dad's hand and crying softly as he died. And I was sitting in the same room still wondering why she was doing that. But I also knew God had changed her heart. Have you actually seen God change someone's heart fundamentally at the deepest level? Where hatred goes away, bitterness is solved. I saw that happen to my mom by sitting at the feet of Jesus based on the teachings of Cousin Morris. And I have to tell you, I think that's the greatest reason I was able to follow God's calling in my life to ministry and believe and stay with the church is because I saw it work. I have to say, I never saw my dad's walk with Jesus change his life. But I saw it change my mother. Now, somewhere in this era of my life, and I can't get the chronology exact, I remember Cousin Morris commenting one of the few times we talked. He commented positively on my interest in spiritual things, and he very quietly hinted at how he sure wished his own son had the same interest. You see, Lee was the... uh, senior at La Sierra Academy. He could get an A in Bible class and quote all the doctrines and the texts. But he had absolutely no interest in a relationship with Jesus. None at all. It's just words. So late in the summer of 1972, as Mom and I had been making the pilgrimage to La Sierra every week, I evidently went over to La Sierra one Sabbath afternoon, and uh, I always looked up to Lee. He was six months older than I, but that put him a year ahead in school. He seemed to have a away with the girls I wish I had, and he was a rock climber, you know, climbed El Capitan and stuff. He was a big rock time rock climber and, uh, and, and backpacker. I wished I was. See, I kind of looked up to Lee, even though I hardly knew him. And he had a motorcycle, and my mom wouldn't let me have a motorcycle. So I remember I went over to see Lee one Sabbath afternoon, and Lee was headed for a Bible study. And I'm going, huh? I didn't think Lee was interested. Well, here's the back story. A few weeks or months before, I don't know how long, Lee had had a Friday night that he didn't know what to do. His girlfriend was out of town, so he went over to his uh, friend Chris's house. And uh, Chris, Chris, a guy, okay, there I realized Chris could be either one of his guy friends. He went over to find some action, and Chris said, well, I'm going to a Bible study. And that shocked Lee because Chris was not the Bible study type. The backstory behind the backstory, a few weeks before, a group of kids from La Sierra Academy had been meeting for a Friday night gathering, which was, they were on spirits, but not the spirit. They were on vapors that were not from the altar of incense, okay? They were having a Friday night party, and they were all getting high, and somehow, while they were all high, these are the wild kids at La Sierra, Lee wasn't there. One of these kids said, hey man, like I was thinking, what if there really is a God? And we don't connect with him because we're so turned off by church and we miss out on everything. And somebody else said, bummer man, that would be a big bummer. 
And somebody else said, well, what can we do? We don't want to miss out. Somebody else said, well, why don't we try and experiment? Like what? Well, maybe we get a Bible. God's supposed to show up there. And maybe we read the Gospel of John and see if God shows up. And so these kids, while they were high, decided that they were going to run an experiment. They were going to get together and read the Gospel of John and see if God showed up. So they went to their Bible teacher on Monday and said they wanted to try this experiment. He was ecstatic. He said, you can use my living room. And he went in the back room of this family and prayed for him. And these rowdy, druggy kids from La Sierra, a whole bunch of them, met Jesus. He showed up. They met for a number of weeks just reading about Jesus. And one night they read about the Syrophoenician woman, that Gentile woman who said, my daughter is demon-possessed. And Jesus says, well, I was only sent to the children, not, you know. And she says, but the puppies get the food. And Jesus says, fine, your daughter's healed. And somebody said, wait a minute, the daughter's messing with the demons and the mother prays and the daughter gets healed. How does that work? And somebody said, intercessory prayer, man. That's intercessory prayer. Oh, well, why don't we try another experiment? And so they decided to pick the two kids in La Sierra Academy that they felt were the least likely to be interested in Jesus. Lee says he doesn't remember who the girl was, but the guy was Lee. They picked the pastor's son as the least likely one to have a spiritual interest. And they began to pray for these two. Now, Friday night, Lee goes to see Chris. Is there some action, something we can do? Chris says, I'm going to a Bible study. Lee said, I went along to see the freak show. He said they got together, sat in a circle, and of course when he walked in the door, they were going, he's here, you know, got to pray him through, you know. God's working. Intercessory prayer works. They talked about some passage in Scripture, and they all prayed together like they were just talking to a friend, and Lee said in the middle of that prayer, he just started to weep. And he didn't know what was going on, and he was embarrassed, and he had his head down, and he was trying to not show it. And after they were the prayer was over. Everybody left but his two best friends, Chris and Randy. And they came over and said, Lee, are you okay? And Lee said, I don't know what's going on. And they said, we do. You just got ambushed by Jesus. <laughs> and they helped Lee understand what was happening. And he said, I went home that night and I sat down and I read the book of Romans all the way through. And I discovered it was all about trust and relationship. It wasn't about works and right and wrong. And he said, I wondered, when did they put that in the book of Romans? And the next morning he got up and he was reading in his bedroom there with the door open, reading the Gospel of John. And his dad, Morris Vinden, walked down the hall, glanced in, and when he got to the kitchen, he said quietly to Lee's mom, Lee's reading his Bible and it looks like he likes it. So mom had to wander down the hall and take a peek. Finally, Lee came out for breakfast, and he spilled all over. He said, Dad, I've just been reading the Bible, and I've discovered it's not about what you do. It's about who you know. It's all about a trust relationship with Jesus. You get to know him, and that changes what you do. And his dad, Morris Venden, had the wisdom to simply answer, Isn't that wonderful? Now, you know what he wanted to say. Where have you been? I've been preaching this twice a Sabbath for the last. Isn't that wonderful? 
Lee said he went to early service that day, all on his own. Nobody had to make him go. He went to early service. And there, his dad preached a sermon about the privilege, opportunity, and necessity of a personal friendship with Jesus. And Lee was thinking, wow, I just told him about that at breakfast, and he preached a whole sermon on it. (laughs) For Lee, the conversion experience happened love at first sight. And he's never looked back. For me, my conversion experience was a little more like a little bit here and a little bit there, and I can't point back to the big moment. I can't point back to the big moment when my wife and I fell in love. It took a long time to even like each other, and then things started to click, and oh yeah, okay, yep, right around there, November, December, yep, we fell in love. Your conversion may be like Lee's, your conversion may be like mine. It may be a nuclear explosion or it may be something that has taken time and is still going on. I'd like to suggest whichever kind of person you are, there's life in a look. The Holy Spirit is responsible for the new birth. We can't make it happen. It can only happen when he blows through. All I can do is look daily in the direction of the uplifted Savior. And he says, if I look, if I look to him asking for him to reveal himself to me, he promises he will bring the click and he'll bring it his way. It may be a big explosion, it may be a lot of little moves. But he'll bring it. And in the process, he will also transform me into a new creation. See, I'm the emotionally handicapped one, I think, because of the story I told you about with my dad. I've had this, I want to have a nice theological conversation with God. I don't want to crawl up in his lap and be hugged. When I told you that I said, pray by daddy, that tells me that is my only memory of wanting to be in my dad's arms. I know I must have wanted it because I got on my knees and said, pray by daddy. I don't ever remember wanting that again. So I have the emotional handicap of being enveloped in the Father's arms. I want to have a discussion. I want to argue some theology. So God's had a tough nut to crack here. And what can I do? I can only do one thing like Nicodemus. If I will look, he guarantees the outcome. I may not understand the steps on the way. I may not understand everything that's already happened. I may not know how he's ever going to have me ready in time. But I do know that Jesus says, if you look, you will live. Let's pray. Jesus, we all have a different journey with you. There's no prescribed route except you are the way. You are the only way. And I just want to thank you that whatever our path has been, how frustrating it may have been, whatever handicaps or wounds each of us have had to deal with, Satan attacks every one of us relationally because he wants to handicap us from a relationship with God. But Lord, those wounds all look different. We all have different issues, but I want to thank you that you have promised that if we'll just do the one thing we can do, no matter what's been done to us or we've done to ourselves, 
no matter how hard or easy it might have been, if we will just look to you and behold the Lamb of God and fix our eyes on you, you promise, you guarantee that you will start and finish a work and that you will give us life that will begin now and will last forever and ever. Life that is worth living forever, that goes on forever. I thank you for that promise and I pray that each of us here will never give up on looking and that we will stop being so distracted and we will take time daily to fix our eyes on Jesus, even if we don't know what's happening because you promised the outcome and that's the outcome we desire. Draw us to you as we look, we pray in your name. Amen.